Welcome back to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. You can find me on Twitter at jchanpharma. First off, the Asia Healthcare Podcast now has an email. So if you want to contact the show, email me at asiahealthcarepodcast at gmail.com. Just to say hi or provide some feedback for the show. And we're always looking for interesting companies or startups in Asia to talk to. So definitely throw me some names so I can add to my watch list. In today's episode, I talked to Lance Little, Managing Director of Roche Diagnostics APAC. He's also on the board of APAC Med Technology Association. Lance is someone I follow on LinkedIn, and every so often he writes these posts to share his thoughts on where the medtech sector is going. With diagnostics being a huge part of how we're combating COVID-19, I took this opportunity to ask him about how our healthcare systems in Asia have held up, whether we're spending too little of our healthcare budgets on diagnostics, and how countries can build a more resilient healthcare system for the future. All that and more in today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Lance Little, Managing Director of Roche Diagnostics for APAC region and a member of the Board of Directors at the Asia-Pacific Medical Technology Association, or APAC-MED. Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here because the topic we have today is a pretty big one and one that our industry will be probably talking about for years to come. And the topic we're exploring today is pandemic preparedness in Asia's healthcare systems. And so with a topic like this, we can go in a lot of directions. There are lots to cover, but given the time we have, we'll probably touch on a few um, and scratch the surface of some of the issues we could explore. But um, yeah, before we dive right into it, I'd first love to know more about you, uh, how you became part of the life science med tech community and you know having the privilege of um, peeking at your bio before this call there's one um, question that needs to be asked uh, i was wondering are you a kiwi or an aussie oh okay all right thanks jonathan um well, yes, you're right. I mean, you know, the, the topic at hand, I think, may throw up more questions than answers, but we'll get into that. Um, with respect to me, I'm a Kiwi, you know, uh, all blacks through and through and all of that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I started my career in New Zealand uh, working in labs, actually, hospital labs and community labs. And so in that context, as working for Roche in subsequent years, I was a customer. So I, I was a customer first, and then I came into the, to the Roche world. And I've been in Roche for about 25 years, uh, working and been privileged to be able to work in a number of countries across Asia Pacific. So uh, New Zealand obviously is home where the early parts of my career was. And then perhaps even the more formative years of my career were once I moved out of my home country and, and uh, worked in Thailand and India. And then, of course, for the last eight plus years been here in Singapore. Mm, interesting. So were you always quite interested in science and lab science? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Science in a form. And, and you know what, I, I guess I, I would love to say to you that I had a plan from day one in my career. And that's simply not true. I always had a, a passion for science and an investigative nature of things. And uh, that led me into the laboratory world. And, uh, you know, from there, I just, you know, loved the technology. And that was a key driver early in my career. And then I think as you mature and, and you, you get exposed to different things, then my 
the drive. I've always been passionate about technology, but then that's not enough. And what I realized was that to be able to make a difference, you need to be able to mobilize people. So to be able to actually connect and interface and, and work with people to grow teams to then make a difference is now sort of um, the passion that drives me within my career today. Mm, okay. Yeah. So now with the benefit of hindsight, we saw how last year's COVID pandemic um, really crippled our uh, healthcare systems across the globe and you know how different countries implemented uh, various measures to try and control the outbreak. Um, some countries doing better than others. And Lance, I know that as part of your job, you work with uh, various healthcare leaders across APAC. Um, and so I wanted to ask you just as an overall observation, how did you think Asia has handled the COVID-19 pandemic up till now? Mm. Look, Jonathan, I think there is a lot to consider here. If we think about it from the lens of Roche Diagnostics and, and, and our role within this, we, we're, we're at the, we're front and center. You know, we're providing the, the, the testing tools that clinicians can then use to try and manage, uh, this healthcare pandemic. And so what we observed was, I, I would say, many different approaches. I think one thing that happened in the early days was countries reasonably focused very much on how do they secure the safety of their, of their own population. And people addressed that in many different ways. You, you, you know, for example, you know, you had countries like Korea, uh, China and Singapore that moved very, very quickly. And, and, and these countries perhaps were influenced by previous, um, uh, viral epidemics, for example, SARS, MERS. So those learnings had been adopted and, and perhaps these countries were a little more aware and potentially prepared to move very, very quickly and understood the, the values of social distancing and the value of testing where once we could test, and move very quickly. Then you had another dynamic, perhaps, with countries like Australia and New Zealand that I, I'm, I might argue initially were a little bit late to the party, but acted extremely um, clearly. And at the time, I did wonder, wow, closing borders. When I heard that, that my home country of New Zealand was closing its borders, I went, whoa, that's a, that's a bit extreme. But in hindsight, no, it was the right thing to do. And so some countries move very uh, decisively and others learned from from past experience and understood the social distancing and the importance of testing. And yet there's a group of others that perhaps no matter what they tried to do because of their healthcare infrastructure is perhaps not quite as, as well established that they perhaps are still struggling to get their arms around it today. So across the Asia-Pacific region, we saw a real mix of approaches. Mm, that's uh, right. Yeah, and I remember seeing um, uh, news articles maybe a BBC News praising uh, Jacinda Ardern for uh, handling the, the pandemic very well in your home country. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we've seen con uh, some countries contain the outbreak pretty well, Singapore, South Korea. I also saw uh, some articles about uh, Vietnam's response was very good as well. Um, and here in Hong Kong, we've managed to keep the cases down uh, quite, uh, quite well. And, you know, everyone has to do their part, uh, wearing a mask, social distancing, etc. That brings another element to, Jonathan, just to, so there is the science and the biology of, of the virus and how it's transmitted and what we're learning about it. There is also the social element to how willing, 
a, a particular population within a country is prepared to adopt what may be deemed as best practice. And we see variations there as well. And uh, I think what we, what we would say in hindsight, you know, just over a year down the road now, that where a country is able to mobilize its entire population in a singular direction and that population is, is somewhat compliant towards that, then management of this virus alongside um, the testing regimes and and the, the wearing of masks and social distancing, I think, is is big, proven to be the most effective approach. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's so much to unpack here um, because there are so many factor, factors that can affect how a country can manage an outbreak. Um, so uh, we we've kind of touched on a couple of points, but yeah, have you seen? Uh, certain factors that enable some countries to respond outbreaks better than others. I know that that also depends on the existing infrastructure, as you mentioned, and the policies in place. But have you been able to draw any contrast or, you know, think of uh, what are the most important aspects? I think if we look at a country's journey, a singular country's journey, there are some things that play in its favor. And then when you add the actions that we may take, specifically with COVID, then then we get a different outcome. So, uh, for example, if we look at, um, and on New New Zealand, some of the things that play in New Zealand's favour are distance, right? There's there's no road border, so they're all automatically isolated geographically, plus population density, right? So uh, New Zealand's population is spread over what is, in truth, a very large country, it's not usually known of that because it's seen next to an extremely large country of Australia. But social distancing, therefore, is somewhat natural in New Zealand. And so if you can close off your borders and control your environment and spread people out within that, then you're going a long way to managing this. And then on top of that, if you have a healthcare infrastructure that is well-established and, importantly, everybody can access that healthcare infrastructure, then you've got the recipe for being able to somehow control things. Now, in contrast, you've got uh, many other countries don't have those sorts of luxuries. In, 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 in any sense, population density may be much higher. Singapore is a case in point. But the access to the healthcare infrastructure in Singapore and, and we're very compliant as a population all aids to managing a pandemic then you overlay testing regimes. So being able to understand where your infected population is, learning about the dynamics by which that infected that infection progresses is all buried in the heart of testing regimes. And whether that is, if you like, gold standard PCR testing, whether, it, whether it's um, using point-of-care antigen testing, and at a, at a tracing level, whether it's using sequencing to determine who is connected to who in the, in the uh, transmission of, of COVID, all become extremely important tools. And what, one of the things that we know consistently all the way through is that testing forms the foundation of creating the information needed for governments and countries to be able to make the decisions that they have to make and are able to make to, to get this under control. Mm, okay. Yeah, so in, in terms of testing, I think this is a really good um, transition point for my next question, which is um, about our current healthcare system. You know, the value of diagnostics, I'd love to ask you a little bit later, but uh, I wanted to know, you know, what your perspective is in terms of the way our healthcare systems are set up right now and what 
COVID-19 has informed us about our current setup because it, it feels like, you know, as our populations grow, uh, average life expectancy improves, we're living longer, and so we're using up resources for a longer period of time. So it's more of a slow drain, whereas COVID really kind of shocked our system. So I was wondering um, how you have thought about our healthcare system and what our current setup has been like? It's a good question, Jonathan. I think what COVID has done is it's probably fractured healthcare systems that were not as strong as we might hope they would have been uh, pre-COVID. So it's a bit like, a, you know, um, an earthquake coming through a, a particular landmass and some buildings manage it, manage to, to withstand it and others don't and they collapse. And I, and I view COVID as, as a similar dynamic on the healthcare systems of the world. Very often, and we see this across Asia Pacific, and it's not exclusive to Asia Pacific, but we see healthcare systems that are better able to support the general health of the entire population. And those healthcare systems seem to have withstood the, the earthquake of COVID much more than those healthcare systems that perhaps support the top end of society, but maybe don't get all the way through to all levels of society. And so that's where we see access to healthcare being a critical and, and not a new concept, right? I mean, but where we have inequities and in access, we've also seen COVID highlight challenges in those particular healthcare systems. So I really see that if you like, COVID has sort of shone a bit of a spotlight on us in the healthcare environment to say where where are we building models that really do work and where have we got models that you know perhaps need to develop further to be able to withstand this shock effect that something like COVID has has taken on us. Because COVID, as we know, did not affect any particular socioeconomic group. It went right through society. It affected everybody and continues to do so. So it's a very honest challenge to our healthcare systems, if you want to put it in that sense. Mm. There was also some um, data and statistics about how we spend our healthcare budgets. And I believe we spend a lot on uh, the curative side and, and less on the preventative side. So one of the questions I have, I guess that's this is also related to the diagnostics um, aspect is, do we have a resources allocation problem? And has COVID kind of shown a light on, you know, how much we should balance or correct our, our, our spending? Yeah, it's a fair question. I think the answer is yes. Um, I, I guess everybody within the healthcare sector is going to argue no particular segment has enough money to do what they want to do, right? Every, everybody is going, is going to suggest that, and that's fair. Um, I think the truth of the matter is that countries... Uh, in, in my view, are perhaps in one of two buckets of development. The first bucket is where they are trying to establish a fundamental level of health care across their entire population, you know, establishing things like um, universal health care coverage and, and, and elements like that. And then once that's been achieved, very often the country moves into a different phase uh, or a different bucket where now they're wondering how they can afford to manage what they've created. 
So healthcare is is not inexpensive. We understand that, and every every country is trying to manage this. But importantly, and I think this is what COVID has done, COVID has highlighted the role that diagnostics plays in uh, a healthcare ecosystem and, in fact, an economy. So diagnostics is, as we, under, as, as, as we would view it, is foundational to decision-making. So in other words, you know, we know the global stats have, have not changed over many, many years where approximately 2% of healthcare spending goes into diagnostic testing, yet diagnostic testing informs somewhere in the order of 70% of clinical decisions. So you can see that, that if you look at it from a, a, um, the level of a, um, uh, a funder, for example, then this is a great return on investment. I'm spending 2% over here, but it's informing 70% of clinical decisions. Imagine if 2% became 4 Wow, now there's a question to ask, right? Um, and so I think fundamentally COVID has lifted the role of diagnostics as an industry and as a, as, as a participant in the healthcare ecosystem in people's minds. Pre-COVID, nobody really knew or understood what a test was, and those that did, it's not a great experience. Somebody sticks a needle in your arm, and then the clinician tells you if you've got a problem or you don't have a problem, and then treatment follows. But with COVID, now everybody on the street understands the importance of a test or not. It happens to be a very specific one and involves a, a, a nasopharyngeal swab. But the point is people are much more aware and understand the value and the role that diagnostics plays to their health. And I think this is a fantastic development. It's a shame that it took something like COVID for that understanding to come through. But fundamentally, if we can continue to acknowledge and understand that if we spend a dollar wisely on diagnostic testing, and that could be in the form of screening, it could be in the form of ensuring that people stay well, then we save thousands and tens of thousands of dollars down the road potentially in, in, in treating diseases that could have been avoided. So I think that's what COVID has done with respect to, to diagnostic testing. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting because I think last year and I guess now continually as well, uh, COVID has highlighted how preventative medicine or preventative measures is, is so important. And I, I, can, I can admit that I don't go to my annual healthcare checkups. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, very regularly. I, I try to do it um, at least twice, uh, once every two or three years, but I really should go, you know, once a year or so. Yeah. And, you know, even now with the, with, with the role of vaccines, people are starting to see the, the benefits of, you know, vaccination, for example, whereas, you know, maybe two years ago, people are less um, inclined to, to do so. It's a mindset thing, Jonathan. I think that's what we're saying. I, I find it really interesting, and I challenge myself on this as well because I'll get my car serviced regularly, but it took an active thought process to get myself checked up on a regular basis. I do, but it took some time for the penny to drop, yet my health is my absolute most valuable possession. Um, so I think it's this mindset around, you know, a, a, a lot of us have this view that when something breaks, I'll get it fixed. But the problem is, 
or, or, or the opportunity perhaps is that with the technologies that we have today, there are many diseases that if we get stay ahead of them, we can avoid them in the first place. And I think this is the mindset shift that we need to take. I'll, I'll illustrate that with an example. If we take a look at, at, at cervical cancer in women, over the years, this, this developed and the technology developed such that we could detect it, right? So when it was there, we could detect it through a pap smear, for example, and then countries, many countries adopted that. Many did not, but many countries did and, and really reduced the amount of women that, that, that were suffering from and potentially dying from cervical cancer. And then as technology developed, and, and Roche was a key part of this, in, in understanding that the HPV virus is a causative agent, so if we can identify women who have the HPV virus, maybe we look at them a little closer. And if we can identify women that don't have it, then we know they're not going to get cervical cancer at this point in time. So that's a great example where technology has driven a change in clinical behavior. But importantly, it takes the diagnostic testing as being driven upstream to save lives before the problem even happens as opposed to diagnosing whether a problem is there or not. And that's a much more effective way of use of, of resources and much better for, for the health of, of the population. And as we know from COVID, if we've got a healthy population, then we have a healthy economy as well. Mm, yeah. How, how challenging is that aspect of your work? Because uh, I, I imagine you speak to a lot of um, stakeholders, public government officials, or even private um, companies as well. Um, how challenging is that for you to you know, work on people's mindset uh, in terms of diagnostics and um, things like that? It's not easy, I'll be honest, because um, I think it's a bit of a tendency of human nature to think more short-term than long-term. And very often what we're saying is, you know, invest time, effort, and money in doing some testing early to avoid something that may or may not happen in the future. And I, I, I think as human beings, we're not very good at having that long-term view and investing now for something that, that, that is further down the road. I think that's one of the fundamental challenges. It's really good to see that as societies in general get more and more healthy, I think this trend of ensuring our health will become stronger and stronger over time. But, but I think we're on a journey um, in, in that thought process. Mm, I see. Okay, so with the current rollout of um, vaccines, assuming that we are able to control this pandemic um, this year, what do you think uh, our future healthcare systems will look like or, or should look like? Because um, we've touched on so many aspects um, of this topic. But in, in, your, in your mind, what is on your wish list of you know, healthcare systems or things that um, you have not seen yet, but hope to see change in five years or 10 years? So with what we've learned from COVID and, and how that has sort of highlighted some uh, deficiencies in healthcare systems, I, I guess some of the elements I'd like to see fundamentally an honest acknowledgement of the role of diagnostics in, in, in a healthy society. I mean, that, that, that to me, again, I would say is foundational. But then let's, let's also understand that we need to build healthcare systems that are immune to the earthquakes. 
right? Because I think this is we're going to get more of these, right? We've had them in the past, and I think they're going to be they are going to continue. And because of the widespread nature of COVID, it has shocked the planet. Other pandemics have not done that. They've been more isolated. So the fact that it's shocked the planet has hit the global economy, and we see this. Um, so therefore, we need to make sure that we build healthcare systems that can withstand these shock events. And in order to do that, I think there's a few things that, that I'd love to see happen. One is I'd love to see sensible collaboration across countries. Right? For, for example, when there is a shock event, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the diagnostics example, we then build, we then build tests. It would be great to see countries that uh, can work together. And if one country evaluates a test against certain standards, then the other countries go, yep, we know you've got it covered. We will accept that as well. So then they get access to the tools they need much, much faster. So that, that would be one example. And APAC Med put out a, a, a white paper on this about how countries could leverage and work closer together in a future construct. That's one. The other thing I'd like to talk about a little bit is the, the adoption of digital tools. So we, we know that in a pandemic world or even in a pre-pandemic world, there were inefficiencies in healthcare, and we understand that. Now, one of the ways we believe that those inefficiencies can be eliminated and uh, we can move the delivery of health forward such that patients benefit much more in a much more significant way is by the adoption of digital tools where it makes sense. So in other words, you know, track and trace here in Singapore, for example, and in many other countries has become normal part of our world. Now, that's a minor inconvenience for me as a citizen. However, it's a huge value to managing the pandemic. So the question that, that, that comes to the fore is how do we better enable digital tools to be built into existing healthcare environments so that we can move to new models of care that may be more affordable and more effective uh, in, a, in a future world and help us build those stronger healthcare uh, ecosystems. Mm, that's a great point because um, as we've seen uh, since last year, everything has gone digital, online, and uh, the point about digital tools is, is great because, you know, one of the things that we've talked about uh, as a society is uh, whether things like telemedicine will be, will be more of a permanent trend uh, after this. And certain aspects of our healthcare systems like electronic health records, um, everything is being digitalized. So uh, in terms of diagnostics, one thing I forgot to ask you about is you know, the, with the rise of like uh, AI or machine learning, I've been reading how, um, you know, these, these tools can help people, you know, through telehealth, telemedicine, uh, help clinicians diagnose patients through a webcam, for example. So how much do you think remote diagnostics will become uh, part of our future? Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I view the digital revolution, if you like, in healthcare as another example of new tools that can be applied. So if you wind the clock back, you know, the, the, the development and invention of X-ray, for example, is, is, is a tool that technology provided to us 
And then clinicians and, and healthcare ecosystems worked out a way in which to integrate this tool to add value. And I think that's the important thing to think about digitization as well, is how do we bring in appropriate digital tools to enhance what we already have today? So a, a couple of examples of that might be, as a patient, say, for example, I was seen for uh, some reason last week in a hospital environment and I had some blood tests done. Now, wouldn't it be fantastic for if... For some unforeseen reason, I was in a car accident this afternoon and the information in those, that was contained from those blood tests of last week was material to my treatment right here and now, then wouldn't it be great if that information was available? So the mobility of information to be where the patient is at the time at which somebody needs to make a decision around that patient is critical. And so what we need to ensure is we start need to talk about standards within data. We need to start talking about data interoperability to be able to move information that already exists in the healthcare system. To your earlier point, a lot of things have been digitized. They have, but we're not very good at moving them around and making sure that they are in the right place at the right time. So I think that's that, that that's one element that we need to think about at a more foundational level to enable appropriate adoption of digital tools. Now, will digital tools be adopted? Yes, and I think COVID accelerated that. So your example of telehealth is a, is, is a very good one. So because nobody could see each other, then we were forced into, you know, Zoom-type platforms for telehealth and diagnosis. And then we find that there's some advantages in this. Um, that may work very, very well for certain patients and certain certain clinicians. So the adoption would remain and it, would, it will find its place in the broader healthcare ecosystem. Do I believe that telehealth will replace a, uh, an interaction between a patient and clinician in, in its entirety? No, I don't because it doesn't give all of the elements that a clinician may need. But I think, I think COVID has accelerated the adoption of certain, certain uh, digital tools and perhaps opened the doorway to the acceptance of more new ones. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I don't think um, telehealth, for example, will completely replace our need for physical uh, visits to our doctor, for example. Yeah, so as we wrap up our discussion now, um, you know, you mentioned um, some of your work at with APAC Med. You mentioned a white paper on, um, you know, collaborations that can be improved between countries. But well, what can we expect to see from uh, you from this year, whether with APAC Med or Roche Diagnostics? Um, are there any um, special projects or events planned this year? How can people find your work? I know that you sometimes, um, you know, write really insightful um, articles on LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, how can people follow you or support you? And yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it, you know, overall, my role and, and and what I'm passionate about is is driving forward, you know, the place of diagnostics within a healthcare ecosystem and and improving it. So you know, that remains my focus. Um, and, and particularly improving it within the construct of Asia Pacific, because we have very different drivers to health than many other countries around the world. So acknowledging that and building systems that, that serve the patient in the Asia Pacific environment is, is something that I'm very, very passionate about. Um, yeah, through the work with APAC Med is a platform that, that, you know, I'll continue to work through. And then, you know, with regards to LinkedIn, I think 
you know, what I try and strive to do on the LinkedIn platform is create thought in other people's minds, trigger another conversation. Um, and uh, I think that's an important thing for us all is to keep the thought process and the dialogue and the conversation building and growing. And then uh, ultimately we'll, we'll make a tremendous difference, I believe, to, uh, to people's health. Okay, great. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us uh, today, Lance. And yeah, looking forward to keeping in touch and hopefully seeing you uh, in person soon. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And stay safe in Hong Kong. And that is it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're getting your podcasts. See you in the next one.